So some misunderstandings are rather harmless. You might even call them humorous. So I'm not sure if I've shared this story before, but there was the, the time when I went with my college roommate and visited his family out in Richmond, Virginia. And though my roommate was born in South Korea, and though his parents still only spoke Korean in their home, he was as American as apple pie. And yet there we are, we're entering into his home. Parents, I know, proud, right? They own a laundromat. They've made it in the States. So I walk through that front door, and as I head into the living room, I see above the mantle this large, stately picture of what I assumed was my roommate saying his grandfather. So as I enter into the room, I just blurt out, wow, saying, what a wonderful picture of your grandfather. And I'm trying to make a good impression before the family. To which my friend saying bursts out laughing and looks and he says, Brad, that's not my grandfather, that's my grandmother. <laughs> and then he turned and pointed to her in the corner of the room. Yeah, he found it about as funny as you all. I didn't think it was very funny. Right? I was mortified. And yet, right, for all the jokes and for all the awkwardness that would follow, it was, in the grand scheme of things, rather harmless, and I hope, not at her expense, rather humorous. But you know, friends, some misunderstandings in this life, they can be deadly. So during the Korean War, the, the British were called to hold a hill above a strategic river while the Chinese were trying to march across. And the British were outnumbered eight to one. And so the British commander reached out to his, his superior, who happened to be an American commander, and he reached out with this, with this comment. He says, things are a bit sticky, sir. Which in classic British understatement means what? Yeah, they're desperate. We need help. Now some of you are like, that's not what it sounds like. You can ask Christian Dennett, he can explain it to you. That's the Brit really crying out for help when he says things are sticky, Unfortunately, like I trust many of you would, the, the American heard things are a bit sticky, sir, and just assumed, all right, it's a bit hard, but they'll be fine. And the American superior told that British commander to hold the hill at whatever cost. And outnumbered eight to one, sadly, after but a few short days, that British position was overrun, and 500,000, or rather, no, not 100,000, that would have been huge, 500, rather, of the 600 soldiers called to hold that hill were either killed or taken prisoner. Now, as we think about misunderstandings, some humorous, right, harmless, others perhaps more deadly, when it comes to Jesus, you know, there are similarly plenty of misunderstandings. And we tend to think, when it comes to Jesus, of misunderstandings with him, and more along the lines of me misunderstanding my friend's grandmother's picture. Right, things that, yeah, might be a little awkward, but not exactly dangerous. Certainly when it comes to Jesus, we wouldn't assume such misunderstandings would be deadly. But I think the question I want to raise is, are you so sure? Should you be so sure? I mean, what if the ramifications for misunderstanding Jesus were a lot more like the misunderstanding between that British and American commander? Because you see, religious people... Even they misunderstood Jesus. Even religious people surprisingly hated 
Jesus. And as we're about to see that misunderstanding around who Jesus was and what it is that he came to do, right? That was no trifling, trivial matter. No, that would be an ultimate matter, a matter finally even of life and death. So this morning, as we, as we begin a new sermon series through the, through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be, as Stephen mentioned, finishing the book of Mark, Lord willing, this spring. And we've titled this series, Surprising Truths About Jesus. Surprising Truths About Jesus. Truths that often confront the misunderstandings and some of the myths we have about him. And I want to invite you to read along in this series as we go through it. You know, Stephen mentioned that, that sermon card. You could find it at the connecting point or maybe even at the, on the way out at the doors. Read through these sermon texts in advance. You know, they have titles for you, and they're meant to be a little bit playful, so you can even use them evangelistically. Like, religious people hated Jesus, or he paid his taxes, or even he predicted the end of the world before REM. You knew I was going to get an 80s music reference in. All right. Well, again, use that as you would and as you see fit. But for, uh, for the past few weeks, we've been out of Mark. Uh, but we left off, if you remember, with Jesus entering into the last week of his earthly ministry. And for three years now, Jesus, well, he's been teaching. And his miracles and that teaching have been trending right all over Twitter. Jack Dorsey hasn't shut him down yet, right? He's still popular, mobbed by crowds, by paparazzi, wherever he goes. And there are growing whispers that Jesus might just well be Israel's long-awaited Messiah and King. And now we come in this final week to the annual Passover celebration, which would, of course, commemorate Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And so here we have Jesus along with hundreds of thousands of other Jews, and together they're marching up from Jericho to the holy city of Jerusalem. And many are wondering, could this be the moment? Is this the time when Jesus takes the throne? And so we enter that final week. And as we enter it, we're going to see how the pace slows and the camera is going to zoom in. And the remaining six chapters, the final week of Jesus' life, will comprise about 40% of the entire gospel. It's why some have called Mark a passion narrative with just an extended introduction. Because this is where things really come to a head. And speaks to the significance of this final week of Jesus' life and how critical this final week is to understanding who Jesus is, his mission and purpose. So with that, let's read, beginning in chapter 11, and we're going to read through verse 25. Chapter 11, verse 1 through 25. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn there. If you don't have one but grabbed one of those worship guides, you should find the text of the sermon on page 9 of that worship guide. Page 9 of that worship guide. Let's go ahead and read. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those who were standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. 
and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. It was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Now... This is admittedly a peculiar passage, and not because, if you noticed, verse 26 is missing. Though it is. If you want to learn more about that, come back tonight. But it's a peculiar passage because, well, for starters, what's referred to as a triumphal entry isn't, as we look at it, actually that triumphant. Right By the time Jesus gets to Jerusalem, we read by verse 11, it's late. The crowds are gone. It's just Jesus and the twelve, and they get there. Seems everything shuts down and they just go home. And then you have that disturbing scene, right? The cursing of the fig tree when it's not the season for figs. So is this just like petulant Jesus throwing a fit? I mean, what, what's up with that scene? And then Jesus arrives in the temple and there is a sort of another kind of rampage he goes into and he, he drives everyone out and he shuts the whole thing down. And at this moment, think about it. If you're a disciple, if you're a disciple, you're thinking, hey, Jesus, like I thought we, I thought we came here to drive the Romans out. And yet here you are driving everyone out of the temple. 
right? This is not how you win friends and influence people, right? This is drawing the ire, right, of the religious establishment, which he already has a bullseye in his forehead, and now he does this, and once again they say they want to kill him. And then the next morning, Peter, and they pass by that fig tree, Peter notes that it is, it is now dead, and Jesus turns and uses that as an opportunity to talk about faith and prayer. Now, at face value, this is an odd way to begin Jesus' final week. Rather unusual. It's an odd way to do it. But friend, nothing is in here by accident. It's all meant to teach us something about Jesus. Again, about who he is and about what he came to do. In particular, I think we see Jesus' authority in three ways. We see his authority as a king who rules as a prophet who speaks, and as a priest who sacrifices. That's just going to serve as, you know, as our simple outline right there. I'm about to repeat it in a moment. But if you think, you know, here in the United States, in the United States, we've got sort of three branches of government, right? You've got your legislative, you've got your executive branch, you've got your judicial branch, and you need all three functioning well, right, for proper society. Well, in Old Testament Israel, you sort of had three branches, so to speak, if you will, as well. You've got a king who is supposed to rule God's people. You've got prophets who are meant to speak God's word to God's people and call them back to that word. And then you have priests who are to make sacrifices for the people. Part of what's happening here in these, these verses is that Jesus is being presented as the fulfillment of all of that. He is the king who rules and the prophet who speaks and the priest who sacrifices. So let's just look at it that way, all right? Those three points right there. First, the king who rules. Let's think about the king who rules. I think one of the other more unusual details of the passage, right there beginning in chapter 11, is all the fascination with the cult. I mean C-O-L-T, not C-U-L-T. The cult. So chapter 11 opens almost seven verses with all these detailed instructions about a horse. And maybe you wonder why that's there. Right? Why so much time? Why in this triumphal entry, all the focus on a horse? Is like Mark secretly a Texan? You know, some fascination there, loves old westerns, right? What's the deal? Well, it's not because Jesus is tired. Right? That's not why we're getting the attention on the cult. This is, in fact, the only time Jesus rides an animal, I think, in the Gospels. And again, not because he was exhausted, though he probably was tired, that hike up to Jerusalem. It's not because Jesus, he wanted, didn't want the cult sort of for a better view, wanted to set up a little higher so he could see the city. Not because I think he had a secret fantasy of being a rodeo star, right? Those are not reasons to think why Jesus needed this cult. I think the significance of that cult is seen in what Ashton read earlier from Zechariah 9.9, where it was prophesied that Jerusalem Right, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, she read, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a colt. Right, right there we're seeing here the fulfillment of that prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. And you know, one of the Old Testament requirements of animals that would be employed in God's special service was that they never be yoked, right? They never be broken. And so what do we read? Verse 2, this detail, 
that they were to look for a cult on which no one, verse 2 we read, has ever sat. Again, highlighting that cult's sacred and unique purpose. And notice too how Jesus just commandeers the cult. He doesn't ask for permission. And if he did, if he had coordinated it sometime in advance, we're not told. That's not how it's being presented. He simply sends two disciples to take the cult and then promises to return it. And in the Old Testament, really in the ancient Near East in general, the only one who could commandeer an animal like this, someone else's private property, the only one with that authority was a king. Only kings had that right. And what happens when the disciples then arrive in verse 5? Well, they get pressed by the people who are standing about. They're like, hey, what are you doing, right? That's not your cult. To which the two disciples simply respond just as Jesus told them to. The Lord has need of it and will send it back immediately. Now just stop and ask yourself for a moment. If you're out there after service and for whatever reason you're walking up Dixon and you see someone breaking into a Mustang, right? They're trying to lift a car and you cry out to them and they say, hey, don't worry, this is for Jesus I'll bring it back in a little bit. My guess is you're going to think, no way. I'm calling 911. I'm calling the cops. But remarkably, that's not what the guys do. They just seem to say, all right. So if you've ever seen Star Wars, right, the old, like the original, the better films, there's that scene early on in the movie with Luke and Obi-Wan and they're trying to get off Tatooine and they've got R2-D2 and he's got like the plans to the Death Star and the rest and C-3PO and they're trying to escape and they come up and they run into these stormtroopers and these stormtroopers stop them and start to question them and then Obi-Wan in that zen-like fashion just kind of waves his hand and he says, these are not the droids you're looking for and all the stormtroopers are like, yeah, these are not the droids we're looking for. And just wave them on right through. It's kind of like that. It's just this shouldn't work, but it does work. Because there's another authority at work behind this. All of it speaking, I think, to the tremendous authority of Jesus. And then notice even in verse 8. Verse 8 is the crowds, right? As they spread their cloaks upon the road. Now a cloak would have been one of your most prized possessions. You don't just throw it down on a dirty and dusty road for an animal to walk upon. You wouldn't do that for a friend. You probably wouldn't do it for a family member. But you would do it for royalty. You would do it for royalty. In the same way that Jehu in, in 2 Kings 9 about how he was greeted with cloaks strewn out as he went to take his kingdom. And those leafy branches we read in verse 8, those from the neighboring fields, which the Gospel of John identifies as palm branches, right? The people are not waving those branches to fan themselves. This isn't some new, like, first century fashion accessory. That's not what those palm branches were about. Those palm branches were being waved as a kind of royal salute to welcome a king. So to an astute reader, to one with eyes to see, to one who's paying attention to details, like blind Bartimaeus, who had been given sight in the preceding passage. All of this in the scene, everything we're being presented with, screams, King, King, 
Your king has come. As verse 10 says, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Jesus here being presented as David's greater son. And this here is Jesus' own royal reception. But notice what this reception says about the kind of king that Jesus will be. So it wasn't even, you know, two years ago that Thailand crowned her latest king. And it was, this king was crowned. He was all to great fanfare. So hundreds of thousands lined the streets at his coronation. Many millions more watched from TV as this procession over a mile long made its way through Bangkok. Over 40,000 security members and military brass received him. Hundreds of thousands of monks at over 41,000 temples nationwide simultaneously prayed to bless and to honor him. There were platinum coins minted to the tune of $31,000 a pop to celebrate him. Waters from across five major rivers and four sacred pools spanning over 77 provinces were all used to purify him. It was a breathtaking and extravagant display of pomp and circumstance. That's how coronations often go. And to Mark's likely Roman, Roman readers, they would have understood this kind of coronation. They would have witnessed victorious Roman generals strolling through the, the streets at Rome and being greeted with that kind of fanfare. They would have seen the same with Caesar perhaps himself. And yet Jesus, right, there are no jets flying overhead. There are no cannons booming. There are no golden crowns beaming at this coronation, right? His red carpet treatment, if you can even call it that, if you stop and think about it, some radial garments, strewn out on a dusty, dirty road with some hastily cut branches swaying in the wind. That's his reception. Not exactly what we would call a triumphal entry. Because Jesus came in meekness. He came in lowliness. He came as a humble king, exactly as Zechariah 9 had prophesied. And yet... Though he came as this humble king, no beast ever bore a greater honor. No branch ever bowed in greater homage. And no city has ever witnessed a more regal display than Jerusalem on that dusty day. But this humble king would also be a rejected king. He would also be a rejected king. For the crowds here, they're dancing and shouting as Jesus makes his way to the city gates. But notice by night, where are the crowds? They're nowhere to be found. They disappear as mysteriously as the crowds first appear. And in but days, just what, two, three days from now, those crowds that cheered him would be the crowds that jeer him. And his very own would renounce him as he makes his way to the cross. And is it accidental? Is it just mere coincidence that Israel's true Messiah can find no residence in her holy city, but had to lodge outside the city walls there at Bethany some two miles away? 
Is that detail just a coincidence? But friend, this rejected king is most unmistakably, he is the sovereign king. So notice when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he doesn't arrive as some gawking tourist, right? With the iPhone out, looking at the magnificence of the temple, grabbing a few selfies. That's not how he arrives. Nor does Jesus come as a pious pilgrim with the need to make sacrifices for himself. Now we read in verse 11, he arrives and we read that he looked around at everything. He arrives as Lord. He arrives as king. And right there, he's inspecting his domain. It's his and rightfully his. There's a purpose to it. There's a plan in all of this. From the cult to the branches to the cries of the people. Even the final destination of the temple at Passover. All of those details are suggesting to us, really crying out to us, that Jesus is in control, that Jesus rules, that Jesus alone reigns. And so what happens that next morning as Jesus returns, that's not in the temple some spontaneous fit of rage, but that is a planned and purposeful demonstration. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. For the real king, God's true king, had come. And he is about to take the throne. Now I wonder if you've come this morning. You've come or maybe you're listening online. And maybe you wouldn't identify as a Christian. I wonder what you make of this whole scene. Is this just some old boring story of a past tribal deity? Maybe you're tempted to look at it that way. But what Mark wants you to see is that Jesus is not just Israel's king. He's God's king. The one and only God. The God who created all things. Which means Jesus is the king over not just the nation of Israel. He is the king over all nations. All peoples. All creation. Indeed all of the cosmos. He rules and reigns over it all. Which means, like it or not, Jesus is your king. He is your king as well. One to whom you will one day bow in solemn submission. And there is no question about the legitimacy of this king's rule. He was never elected. He never had to run for office. He will never face an impeachment. Friend, the universe is no democracy. The universe is a monarchy and Jesus alone is on the throne. He is the preeminent king. He doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. He doesn't rule by referendum. This king rules by divine right. Which means Jesus demands and deserves all of us. Like all of our faculties, all of our abilities, all of our life. The question that we all have to ask is will we bow that knee willingly to this King Jesus? Will we do so joyfully? Because he is a wonderful king. Or will God have to bend it for us? It will happen one way or another. Well, to my Christian friends, I want you to see in the scene, and I want you to at least take away one lesson from it. And that is that we never want to be so naive as to mistake 
religious enthusiasm for true saving faith. We never want to be so naive as to, as to mistake religious enthusiasm for true and saving faith. For the same crowds that will rejoice as Jesus approached Jerusalem, those same crowds are going to turn on him at his arrest. Because authentic faith, saving faith, well that, the Bible says, that's persevering faith. If you want to know what authentic saving faith is, it's persevering faith. As our own statement of faith says as a church, right? It is our persevering attachment to Christ that is the grand mark that distinguishes genuine believers from false believers, right? From false professors. And friends, this COVID season, as Wes so wonderfully prayed in that pastoral prayer, it's testing our faith. It's testing our faith, right? Whether it's the virus or whether it's the mass or whether it's the elections, whether it's now the vaccine, right? You name it. A million different ways our faith is being tested. It's testing where our true hopes lie, where our allegiances lie. And it's easy to wear down spiritually, to become burdened, to become anxiety-ridden. And when that happens and we take our eyes off of Christ and off of his word, what happens? We begin to drift slowly And yet, steadily, we drift, and we drift away. And if I can just speak to some of the members of UBC, some who are here, some who may be listening, sadly, some who probably are not listening, the elders are concerned about that. Increasingly, as we gather and we have our meetings and as we pray for you, as we pray through that member directory, we're concerned for you. Not all of you, not even the majority of you, but many of you, we are concerned Because some, it's evident to us, some of you care less about the things of God, evidenced in how you care less about gathering with the people of God, talking about the things of God, sharing the things of God, given more over to irrational fears or consumed with the latest conspiracy theories. And we just want you to know that as your elders, as your elders, we love you. We're concerned for you. We're here to help you, to walk with you, to pray with you, to think and process through these hard times. We want to do that with you. Because true faith, authentic, saving faith is persevering faith in the midst of trials just like this. And we can't do it alone, right? We need one another. But friend, Jesus isn't just the king who rules. Secondly, he's the prophet who speaks He is the prophet who speaks. So as we get into this next section, I just want you to notice structurally how how it works. So notice verses 12 to 14, you've got Jesus cursing the fig tree. You got that. And then you've got Jesus working havoc in the temple, right? He's flipping tables, driving out money changers. And then we return to the fig tree again in verses 20 and 21, where that tree has now withered and died. So this is what you might call a fig sandwich, Never had one, but we got one right here. Fig sandwich. And notice how Jesus' Jesus's own actions in the temple, right there at the center, they're bracketed on either side by this enigmatic and rather strange encounter with a fig tree. And that's not accidental. This is where structure helps you interpret your Bible. Not accidental. The two stories are actually meant to interpret one another. The fig tree here is just an acted parable. It's an acted parable. 
If you know your Old Testament well, one of the things you may know about it is that Israel is often referred to as a fig tree. And it's often lamented that this is a tree that fails to bear fruit, to which God says he will judge the tree and cut down the tree. And so when Jesus, the next morning after inspecting the temple, when Jesus comes across this leafy fig tree, this nice bright green, I trust, a tree, I don't, I don't go to fig trees, but I assume they're green, nice tree, a tree that, see, this is, it's being presented as looking outwardly healthy, a tree that would hold all the promise of fruit, that's how it appears, but as Jesus arrives and looks at closer inspection, there is no fruit, it's barren, and so Jesus pronounces a judgment upon it. And you see, in just the same way Jesus is saying about Israel and her leaders represented by all that activity there in the temple that outwardly looks really healthy, lots of sacrifices being made, lots of religious activity, lots of promise, you would think, of fruit. And yet, upon closer inspection, Jesus is saying that Israel and her leaders like that tree are spiritually barren. You might come to them religiously hungry, but they will provide nothing for you. And so like the tree, he judges them there in the temple. So Jesus' own encounter with that fig tree, that teaches us, it helps explain for us what's happening there in the temple. And now I just got to admit, right, this action by Jesus with the fig tree, it sparked quite a bit of controversy. I mean, for starters, why is Jesus condemning a fig tree for not having figs when we read verse 13, it's not the season for figs? Seems rather unfair to the poor old tree, doesn't it? But that expression, not the season for figs, that expression is telling us what time of year it was, I think. Right, Fig trees in Palestine, they had two seasons. Their main season, late summer into fall, where they bore those nice big fat figs. But then, Mark is saying, you know what, it's not that season, it's that other season. The season in the spring, where the tree would bear buds, where the tree would come into bloom, and something like mini figs would form on the tree. Not the principal crop, you could eat them, some considered them a delicacy. I read that they're actually a little bit tart either way. This healthy tree bore all the promise of these many figs come spring, but it was deceptive. There were none. And so Jesus pronounces this judgment. But that just raises a different question. Is this, again, a sort of petty and petulant Jesus just condemning a poor, old, innocent tree? And again, that may appear to be so at first glance. You know, the the philosopher, the renowned British philosopher Bertrand Russell, he wrote a famous essay many years ago called Why I'm Not a Christian. And one of the principal arguments biblically he makes for why he's not a Christian is actually this verse right here. He looks at Jesus' own behavior with the tree, and Bertrand Russell just says that Jesus acts in vindictive fury. And as a result, Bertrand Russell's like, I want nothing to do with this kind of a Jesus. Others have referred to this as a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of an ill temper. Maybe that's how it reads to you. You know, it's the only sort of nature miracle where it's a sort of miracle of destruction. We don't come across those in the Gospels, maybe at all. This, I think, is the only really one. 
But I think we got to recognize here, this isn't just Jesus throwing a fit, right? He is purposefully telling us something about the state of Israel in this action. And just to be clear, we've got to recognize trees are not living beings. Trees don't have souls. And I know I'm in Fayetteville, and to some of you that may sound like a cruel thing to say. You know, I came here from D.C. and there were no trees. And then I came here, I love trees. In my neighborhood, just not far from here, I can tell you all my favorite post oaks, right? I love them. We lost a tree this last year. It was like sad. It wasn't losing a child by any means. So it's like, oh, it's a tree. And we've watched like the two towers. You know Tolkien, you know the Ents, those sweet, wonderful talking trees that Saruman was cutting down and they gather together and there's the march of the Ents and they have their revenge and we're like, yes! Well, we feel for the trees. But we just have to know trees don't talk. They don't have consciences. They don't cry out in agony. Right? That's not the case with trees. Trees don't suffer when they die, if you can even use that language of death. They don't suffer any more than your hair suffers when you get a haircut. And it's not because I dislike trees. There's just nothing immoral here in what Jesus does any more than it would be immoral for you to kill some Bermuda grass when you're trying to have a flower bed, right? Okay. But Mark's point, once sort of start to push some of that aside, Mark's point is that here what we're witnessing is Jesus as the prophet who speaks As Old Testament prophets spoke, they spoke what? God's word to God's people. And the mark of a true prophet was that that word came to pass, which is exactly what happens in our text. Jesus speaks to this apparently healthy tree in verse 14. No one may ever eat fruit from you again. And the very next morning, we read verse 20, it comes true. Overnight, the tree has what? Withered away to its roots Which is to emphasize, this isn't just like a sickly tree. This is a truly dead tree, completely destroyed, no hope of recovery. Can't nurse this one back to life. Like a true prophet, Jesus speaks a true word. It's trustworthy. You can bank on it. Even if you struggle to understand it, it is a true word and it is a good word. And not just that, it's an authoritative word. Because notice when Jesus teaches in the temple, the crowds in verse 18 were once again, the common reaction, they were astonished at his teaching. Because when Jesus speaks, he's not speaking like any other man, not merely uttering the words of men. No, he's uttering the very words of God because they're coming from the mouth of God incarnate. No other person has ever spoken with such authority and with such veracity as when Jesus speaks which explains why they're not just true and authoritative, but this is a supernatural word of Jesus's. His words have the power to heal and to destroy. His words have the power to give life and to take life. It's the very words of of Jesus that healed blind Bartimaeus of of his vision, right? Just back in the very preceding verses in Mark 10. It's the very words of Jesus that calmed the raging storm in Mark 4. But he, does, he doesn't have to call on anything but his own voice and the words of his mouth and the storm ceases. He yells into a storm and it stops. No one has authority like that. But Jesus does. Or he merely says, 
to Jairus's own uh, to Jairus, right? Your daughter, Mark five, will be well. Doesn't even have to see her. Doesn't have to touch her. Just says it, and she comes back to life. And that's the power of Jesus' word. It is a supernatural word. And that's also what's being depicted. Which is why, if you are a Christian in this room, you desperately need this word in your life. Absolutely must have it. We live in a world, in a world that is surrounded by lies, by half-truths. And we need to know that when this word speaks, these words of Jesus we have recorded for us, they speak truth. And we can take every one of these promises to the bank with us. And when we feel inept and when we feel powerless, we need to know that it is this word that has the power both to kill sin and to bring life, to bring spiritual life. It can accomplish alone what you and I simply cannot accomplish. Which is why as individuals, and it's why as a church, we must make and continue to make this word central to our lives, to trust it, to cherish it, to delight in it, to memorize it, to depend upon it. Right? If you want to be encouraged, just go read Psalm 119 and reflect on the word of God and the effect it has in the life of a believer. Though my soul clings to the dust, give me life according to your word. Psalm 119.25, this is my comfort in my affliction. What is it? That your promises, your word gives me life, Psalm 119.50, which is why the psalmist says, we rise before dawn and we cry for your help, for I have put my hope in your words, Psalm 119.147. Friend, have you put your hope and trust and these words, and the words of Jesus, true, honest, beautiful words. He is the prophet who speaks. But he's not just that, he's the priest who sacrifices. He is the priest who sacrifices. That's the third thing I want us to see from the text. Because we come to that scene now, sandwiched in between the fig tree, that scene in the temple. And we might picture the scene in the temple, particularly if you've seen some movies about it, we might think of the scene as like, part of this room, or maybe like the outer court of the temple where it would have happened, the court of the Gentiles. Maybe we think it's something like the size of maybe this room, maybe pretty large. But in actuality, Herod was rebuilding the temple, and this outer court was over 500 yards long and 350 yards wide. It was 35 acres was the size of this court. It was enormous. Columns over 12 feet wide, rising over 30 feet in the air, Step by step you go. And pilgrims would come during the Passover every year. And as they came to the temple, they had to pay the temple tax. And they had to pay it in sort of the the Hebrew currency. And yet everyone around, right, the currency of the time as they were occupied by Rome was Roman currency. So what did you have to do? You had to exchange currencies. So here you have all these money changers jostling and bustling about. They're exchanging currency, haggling for business. And then as well... Right? You've got all these brokers, animal brokers, selling birds and cattle up to thousands a day. You've got millions of pilgrims all sacrificing. There is a lot of business happening right here. It would have been a truly chaotic scene. I don't know, maybe you take a Texas cattle market, never seen one, but I imagine it's in Texas. I imagine it's large. I imagine a lot of animals. And I imagine there's a lot of hustling and bustling and yelling going about and smelly things, right? Right? Imagine that meets the New York Stock Exchange. 
take those two images of chaos and commotion and activity and put them together, and you've got a sense of the scene here at the temple. And it's into this temple court that Jesus comes like a bouncer, verse 15, and he just drives them all out. So much for gentle Jesus, right, meek and mild. Here he is in righteous anger and wrath. And why is he so upset? Verse 17, we read of Jesus, is it not written? And then he quotes Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Only Mark, I think, makes that note for all the nations. You see, the temple was to be a light. It was to be light of God's glory, what, to the nations. So think of the temple, and the temple basically was supposed to have this big welcome sign above it saying, all come here, all are welcome here. Come and see what God is like. That's what it was meant to advertise. It was to be a place of purity and of beauty and of holiness, True, genuine worship, and yet this place of prayer here had been turned into a place of commerce and profit. The very place that Gentiles, Isaiah 56, they were meant to be included because of all of this activity, they are now being excluded, not welcome into the courts. You know, so many think that as a consequence, at least in part here, what Jesus is really doing is seeking to restore the temple to its rightful operations, right? He's cleansing it. Many of your Bibles probably have that subheading, right? The cleansing of the temple. But I think in context, I think Jesus is actually doing more. His actions here are a judgment, not just upon the merchants, but it becomes a judgment upon the whole temple system. For notice how his actions bring this whole system to a grinding halt. There are going to be no more temple taxes, no more sacrifices being made when he upends everything. Right, That place that held such religious activity, such religious promise, it had become barren. Like the fig tree, it had withered to its roots And so in judgment, Jesus comes at this moment and he puts the ax to the root of the tree. And he's going to go on to say, as we keep reading in this series, that no stone of this temple will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down, which is what he's already depicting in this action. In his own body, 1422, this temple will be broken down. And in himself, a new temple will be raised. A temple, as we read, Mark 14, not made by human hands. Such that peace with God comes not through the blood of animals, but through his own blood, Jesus will say. The blood of the covenant, Mark 14. So that when the temple curtain is finally torn in two, Mark 15 We know that because, as we've already read back in Mark 10, Jesus has offered himself and given himself as a ransom for many. Jesus, I don't think here, is reforming temple worship. I think he's condemning the perversion of it, and he's fulfilling it and replacing it with himself. The whole sacrificial system, as a means for approaching God, is from the roots being replaced by Jesus. If you've come 
and you're a non-Christian. Part of what I want you to see in all of this talk about the temple and sacrifices is that this system stood as a powerful and, in fact, pretty gruesome reminder that none of us are acceptable to God, that our sins are an offense against God, that for them, actually, we deserve to die, which is why animal sacrifices were made so that another could die in our place. So God's judgment would not fall on us, right, but fall on another But those sacrifices we see, and if you ever read the book of Hebrews, it's very clear about this. Those sacrifices were never enough to finally do away with the penalty, right, and the presence of sin in our lives. They were insufficient to finally deal with the problem of sin. And so, part of what we see is that Jesus came, and we're already seeing right here, he's coming as the perfect Lamb of God. He is the one who comes in the flesh and died on the cross as this sacrificial lamb once and for all to bear our punishment, his blood in our place in order to reconcile us to God. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what we're already beginning to see because there's no sacrifice that you or I could make that is good enough, that is powerful enough, that is pure enough to deal with our sins. Only Jesus can do that and on the cross he did it. Once and for all. The sacrifice you and I so desperately need, Jesus himself has offered. And what he calls you to do, to be reconciled to God through that sacrifice, is to repent of your sins and to trust in him. To believe and have life. Have you done that? Do you believe in Jesus as the one who can reconcile you to God through his own death, through his sacrifice. No other sacrifice will do. But you know, to members of UBC, I think something this also teaches us is that our corporate witness matters. Our corporate witness, it matters. God is watching. And unlike Israel, who failed to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that's what we are called to do. We're called to abide in the vine and to bear fruit. There's actually a lot of echoes here to the parable of the sower and the different soils. Are they bearing fruit? The Pharisees, much of the nation, not bearing any fruit. Will the disciples bear fruit? Will we bear fruit? Or will we be cut down and thrown into the fire? That's a part of Jesus' warning about. You know, in Christ the local church, what we get to be as a people together is actually the Bible says we are the temple of the living God. Go read 1 Corinthians 3.16. Think about 2 Corinthians 6.16. We think about the temple sometimes as our body, which in one sense it is, but it is more fundamentally in the scriptures, actually our church family together. We are that temple. And our now, our corporate witness is to be that light to the nations like the temple was to be to the Gentiles. The kind of worship that we celebrate together is to be the kind of worship. I love the words of Archbishop William Temple. He says, worship, the kind of worship we're to have, corporate worship, is the worship that quickens the conscience to the holiness of God, feeds the mind with the truth of God, purges the imagination with the beauty of God, opens the heart to the love of God, and devotes the will to the pursuits of God. Friends, that's what our gathering together is meant to reflect. That is our 
witness. That's our calling. That's what we are to be together as a church family. And that is a holy calling. And that alone is a hard calling to fulfill. You see, the church and what we're doing now, this is not an event that you passively attend, right, when you feel like it. No, this is an act of worship that is participatory. We share in it together, right, by our singing, by our praying, by our anticipation of the word, and by the way we receive the word and respond to that word, we proclaim Jesus, and we share to the nations around us what Jesus is like. And then we're strengthened to the go to the nations in his power. And all of this, all of this we can't do alone. We can't do this alone, right? We need Christ. We need him to help. He has to remain the object of our faith and trust, which is, I think, exactly why we get those closing words that seem somewhat out of place in verses 22 to 24. This need for radical faith in God, given the judgment, given what Jesus is calling his new covenant community to be, they need to hear these words. They need to know that theirs must be a radical faith, the kind of faith, Jesus says, that can move mountains, the kind of faith that is going to be witnessed by believing prayer, because behind our prayer, Jesus is helping them see, stands an awesome creator with infinite resources, and when we pray, we're calling upon this God, this awesome God, and all of his resources, because nothing in the Christian life is accomplished outside prayer. I don't know if you've thought about it in Mark, I mean, Mark opens with Jesus in prayer, Mark 1. In the middle of the book, we find Jesus in prayer. In the end of the book, we find Jesus in prayer because it is essential to living the Christian life. For Jesus, how not much more for you and me? Prayer is the highest sign of our faith commitment. Right? Because if God's not real, it is an utter waste of time. But if it is real and if he is real, it is some of the best time we could ever possibly spend. Friend, if you struggle with powerlessness in the Christian life, is it because you have a prayerless Christian life? It's a good question to ask yourself. If you struggle with powerlessness in the Christian life, is it because of a prayerless Christian life? Faith, he says, prayer, forgiveness. Even in verse 25, one radically forgiven by God is the only one enabled to forgive others. And this is what Israel and her leaders would not be. And this is what Jesus is calling his people to be. Just members of UBC, is that what we're committed to be together? Are, we're, are we committed to be this together? Would that we spent more time worrying about our corporate witness, about the purity of our lives, than what legislation might be coming our way, or what might be transpiring behind the walls of government? You know, it was nearly 20 years ago that I sat in a sermon and I heard these words from my pastor at the time. He said this, and I think they're good for us today. As for today, I don't know all the spiritual forces and the social changes at work in and among our nation. But I do know that if God's people are undisciplined and indistinct from the people around them, it would seem that God has little incentive to grant religious liberty and freedoms to churches that mislead and lie to the world about what it means to be a Christian. Friends, if our current national moment has taught us anything, it's that we all desperately want 
someone who will rule sovereignly and wonderfully over us. Someone who will speak truthfully and honestly to us. And someone who will sacrifice himself fully and completely for us. Only we'll never find that person on any ballot. We can keep looking and hoping, but he or she will not come. Because God has already sent him in the person of Christ. And this is the Jesus who rules and who speaks and who sacrifices that Mark wants you to know and that you need to know. Is this the Jesus that you do know? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that as we reflect on texts like these, texts that sometimes throw us and can distract us, and yet texts that as we stare at them and reflect on them and think of them in their context and Lord, beautiful things start to come forth. And God, we pray as we walk out these doors that we would have a renewed affection for our Savior, a renewed encouragement to help one another walk in love and in faithfulness with the Savior. And Lord, that we may long for the Savior to come again. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.